while putting up your Christmas lights this year, did, did you in a moment of frustration ask, well, why on earth do I put up these lights every year? Yeah, I'm guessing that some of you are well-informed Christmas light displayers, but, but for the rest of us with a little less historical sensitivity, I'd like to give you a brief history of Christmas lights. And to do so, we have to travel to Germany in the 12th century. Uh, these were the Dark Ages, and the Dark Ages got darkest between mid-November and the end of January. You know, people could expect maybe six hours of daylight in the shortest days of winter, and so they began to annually light this log called a Yule log to give them needed light at nighttime, but also to give them hope, just like we need it by January, February, that spring really will arrive. Uh, Christians took this Yule log lighting celebration and took it into their Christmas celebrations because they were representing Jesus, the light that came into this dark world. You fast forward from the 12th century to the 16th century, and legend has it that our man Martin Luther, the reformer, the Protestant reformer, looked up into a starry sky one Christmas Eve, and seeing all of those stars, he was inspired to take candles and to combine them on his tree, taking the image of light and the image of life evergreen tree and putting them together. 300 years later, 1832, the U.S. saw its first tree decorated by candlelight in the state of Pennsylvania. Now, two problems with putting candles on your Christmas tree, and they don't come in the order that you might think. The first one is that you have to find a way to keep them standing upright as they melt. It's not an easy thing to do. So people came up with some solutions. One solution was to kind of wrap a flexible-style candle around the branch, just hoping that it would stay. And the other one was to melt a candle and to use that melted candle wax as a sort of glue between candle and branch. Eventually, a, a uh, candle holder that clipped on to your branches was invented. So that solved problem number one, but it didn't solve problem number two, the more obvious problem, fires. If families would light their candles on their Christmas tree and then they'd sit back for only about 30 minutes or so, half enjoying and half worrying with a bucket of sand on one side and a bucket of water on the other side, just in case. Uh, one young girl reflecting on her Christmas trees as a kid said, we weren't allowed to use candles on our trees because candles are just so tricky. You think? Insurance companies stopped paying people for the damage due to these inevitable consequences of putting flames on a dead tree in your home. By the 1880s, Edison's new light bulbs were used for the first outside Christmas display, and this was the beginning of the end for the candlelit tree. Since then, we've seen bubble lights and sparkle, twinkle, star, cone-shaped, and icicle lights both outside and inside our homes. And it's estimated that some 80 million homes will be decorated each year and that 150 million light sets are sold annually. Lights go with Christmas. And this is extremely fitting because they represent Jesus, the light of the world. In this series, His Name Shall Be Called, we're getting ready for Christmas by looking at various names of Jesus throughout the Christmas stories found in the Gospels. And so in the previous two weeks, we saw Emmanuel, which means God with us. We saw Jesus, which means Savior. And this week, we're looking at light. 
According to John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And it's our hope that in the next few minutes we'll understand what he means by that and that we'll be able to use those insights to help us to prepare for Christmas this year. Now, by way of introduction, I want to make a couple of comments uh, that will help us kind of set a big picture context for this light stuff. So if you want to take out your weekly welcome, you could jot some of these thoughts down there. In the Bible, we find the language of light and dark used all over the place. In fact, I think it's safe to say that it's one of the major images, one of the major themes of the Bible. And it's for this reason that light and dark imagery served as a primary way for God's people to think about life and to think about the world. You know, if you think for just a moment about it, probably some key events in the Bible's storyline come to mind where light and dark are prominent. Think about creation. In that story, Genesis 1, 1 to 5, we see light that is created that shines in the midst of the darkness. Genesis 1, 1 to 5 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. We, we live with a constant reality right outside all of the time. Creation, light, and dark. Another really significant episode in the history of God's people has to do with their exit from Egypt. Remember this? God led them through the night, through the darkness, by a pillar of fire, a massive light. It's these physical uses of light, the way light and dark is used in these kinds of stories that fuel the metaphorical uses of light that we find in the Bible. The psalmists are regularly taking light and dark imagery to talk about trials or spiritual life or salvation. Look at these two. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Physical and metaphorical uses of light and dark, and this provides the background then for the New Testament's use of light imagery in respect to Jesus. Now this is not uncommon even for us in popular culture. We talk about light and dark all the time. If you look at books and movies and music, you're going to see this stuff. If you pay attention in the next couple of weeks to Christmas carols as they're played, you're going to hear a lot of light and dark imagery. If you listen to Mumford & Sons' newest album, you'll hear one line that says, Give me hope in the darkness that I will see the light. Watching the movie Despicable Me, the main character grew, is regularly coming up with new ideas to defeat his enemies. And what does he say when he thinks of one of these ideas? Light bulb. We, we do the exact same thing. We think about light in terms of coming to our senses or when we finally understood something, we say that the lights have come on. So you've got all the way from the Bible to our present day today, people have processed life through the lens of light and dark. It's one of our primary ways of thinking about our world and it's one of the metaphorical ways that we talk about our experiences and even spiritually speaking, this is a really helpful way to talk about our spiritual lives or salvation or seeking truth. Now, I want to give you three effects of allowing Jesus, the light of the world, to shine on you this Christmas season. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 2. You can also feel, feel free to follow the scripture as it comes up on the screen. 
Three effects. Here's the first effect. The light reveals salvation. You can jot that down in your weekly welcome. The light reveals salvation. We're going to pick up the story a little bit after Jesus is born. The angels have already sung glory to God in the highest. And Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, are on, his, on their way to the temple to present Jesus to the Lord. And they go to the temple and there's this guy named Simeon there. And he has been waiting for God's salvation to arrive. And in walks Jesus. Last week we learned that his name means Savior. He will save his people from their sins. And Simeon's waiting for salvation. And here comes Jesus. Luke chapter 2 verses 28 through 32. Simeon took him, Jesus, this baby in his arms and praised God saying... Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon is really excited about this baby. He's so excited, in fact, that he bursts into song. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't often see people erupting into song about something unless they are really, really excited, and even then, it's rare. So it prompts us to ask the question, what on earth is Simeon so excited about? Well, the clue is in this song that he sings. In fact, the clue is in the name. In verse 32, Simeon describes Jesus as a light, and you only get really excited about the light when you're living in darkness. Darkness is an apt word to describe the world into which Jesus was born. Luke has already hinted at this darkness in a couple of places in Luke chapter 2. The first note of darkness in verse 8 is in reference to the night when Jesus was born. He was born at night in darkness. The only light shining was the light of the angels, representative of Jesus, this light arriving The second note of darkness in this chapter comes in verse 1. Take a look at verse 1 of Luke chapter 2. This one's a little bit harder to see at first, but Luke writes this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This is, in fact, a note of darkness. This census, this decree, is the thing that gets Mary and Joseph to move from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem. And it should be making you kind of curious to think, why is it that a Roman emperor has any authority over anybody in Israel? Isn't Israel God's nation? I thought they were God's nation, not Rome's nation. And you'd be right. They are God's nation, but they are under Roman occupation. God's people, this this group, this nation is called to be a unique nation on the earth. A nation that would bring blessing to the entire world. But here they are under the leadership of a godless pagan Roman Empire. That's the note of things being pretty dark. With this Roman occupation came the corruption of the entire religious system of Israel. They're God's people and they're corrupting their worship of the one true God. In Luke chapter 1, he notes that King Herod is the king over Judea, Herod the Great. And this guy had no problem perverting Israel's unique worship so that he could cozy up to power with Rome to get as much as possible for himself. Things grow a bit dimmer. It's even darker when you realize that the people of God had not heard from God himself for some long time. There's foreign occupation, yes, 
And there's religious system being corrupted, yes, but maybe even worse than all of that is the fact that God has remained silent. From the Old Testament book of Malachi to the New Testament book of Matthew, 400 years elapse of silence, no word from God. So the people of Israel are groping in the dark, wandering, just looking for God to guide them. And then things get even darker when you recognize that this is just one piece of land in a large planet. Multiply the trials of this nation times all of the other nations at the time, and you get a sense of the darkness of the world when Jesus was born. People like Simeon knew that it wasn't going to be this way forever. He knew that God had made some promises. He knew that God had made some promises about light coming into the world to dispel this kind of darkness. And he knew that maybe even it could get to the blackest moment, but God would in fact come through on his promise to shed light into darkness. J.R.R. Tolkien is a master storyteller who uses light and dark imagery in amazing ways. You might have read his book, The Two Towers, or maybe you've seen the movie, The Two Towers and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But it's in this story specifically that he tells of Helm's Deep that might resonate with you that are familiar with it. Helm's Deep is a fortress city. It's a place that you run to if you need to get away from some enemy. You retreat there and you will be safe from impending armies. And so the kingdom of Rohan, they retreat to their place, Helm's Deep, and they think they'll be safe there. But going to Helm's Deep, retreating to that spot doesn't guarantee safety because Sauron and his armies are in hot pursuit. And so you've got this massive scene, this turning point in the movie at Helm's Deep, this battle of Helm's Deep. And our hopes are rising and then they're dashed. And it feels like the black veil of darkness and evil is so thick. There's no way that they can come out of this. And in just that moment, one of the main characters, his name is Aragorn, he hears some interesting words rattling around in his head. It's a promise. It's these words. Look to my coming at first light on the fifth day at dawn. Look to the east. And as these, ear, these words ring in his ears, he remembers that as the sun comes up, help is on its way. And at just that moment, the sun rises and down into the valley, it dispels the darkness. And on its very beams are riding hundreds of reinforcements signaling that victory is theirs. In the midst of darkness, you hold on to the hope of the promise of light. It's exactly what Simeon and the people of God were doing, hanging on tight to this promise that God is going to bring light. And they had quite a few promises of God along these lines. Listen to these ancient words from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 9, 2 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7 say this, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you, and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open up eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 49, verse 6, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And finally, Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. 
See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. The same language from Luke chapter 2. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And then even closer to our text. In fact, just before Jesus, this baby called Light is born, one of Jesus' relatives sings another song. And he talks about the light that's coming, and he comes in the next chapter. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 78. The rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And if you reflect on these verses for even a moment, and you think about the darkness of the world, it becomes really clear why Simeon was so excited. Simeon is so excited because Jesus is the light of salvation that Isaiah was talking about. God has fulfilled his promise in Jesus. Jesus is the one light that shines for all people everywhere. Simeon's song is the good news of salvation that comes through Jesus for the whole world. It's a salvation that produces forgiveness and produces new life in us. And it's offered to everyone without distinction. Just think about the implications of that for a minute. Here's what Simeon's words mean. Jesus is the only light that can bring salvation to our dark world. Jesus is the only light that can bring salvation to our dark world. That's just not some like cute Christmas thought right now. That's for real. Now think about the darkness of our world. Think about the darkness of our own lives at times. Jesus is the only one who can bring salvation to our dark world. If we take seriously the fact that he's called God with us and Savior and light, then we will recognize that any other kind of salvation, whether self-salvation or through finances or government or any other one that you can think of, simply will not do Jesus is the only light. He's the light of the world and he reveals salvation for the whole world and for each of us. The Apostle Paul, reflecting on his time when he came to know Jesus in a saving way, says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For God who said, let light shine in the darkness, a direct connection to the creation text in Genesis 1, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God does a similar miracle to creation when he brings salvation to somebody's life. So, so what thoughts are revealed in your heart as you encounter Jesus, this light here today, are you attracted to him? Are you drawn to him, humbly longing for his salvation? Or are you repelled by the brightness of that light because it exposes the darkness of your heart? Every single one of us needs to embrace salvation through Jesus, coming humbly to Jesus to receive forgiveness and new life. So I encourage you today to look to the light, to look to Jesus, to humbly repent of your sins and to surrender to him by faith because he's the light who reveals salvation. Here's the second effect. The light exposes sin. The light exposes sin. 
How many of you have ever seen one of those news shows that like serves as kind of an expose to show you about the, the lack of cleanliness in hotels? How many of you have seen these things? These guys go in with black lights, you know, and they like expose all of the stuff that you can't see with the naked eye and the whole time your hand is over your mouth. And it's so appalling. And so whoever you're watching it with, you're like, vow by oath before God that I'm never going to go in one of these places again. And then question, how many of you have been to a hotel after seeing one of those? Yeah, pretty much all of us, right? Or like you're getting ready in the morning and you don't realize because you're in your dimly lit room that there's some big stain on your shirt or that you actually have one navy and one black sock on. But then when you walk out into the sunlight, suddenly it's like, oh my gosh, and you see this and you just probably go walking right on your way. Light can expose things in our lives, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to change our behavior. Light exposes things, but it doesn't mean we're going to change our behavior. The Apostle John, who writes a whole bunch about light in the Bible, references this in relation to our spiritual lives. And I again want to give you several different texts from the Scripture that gives you, that, that gives you a sense of this. These are all from the pen of John. And as I read them, I want you to think about whether or not John's description is true of you. All right, so personalize this as I'm reading these. John chapter 3. Verses 19 through 21, John writes, This is the verdict. Light, Jesus, has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. John 8, 12, I referenced it earlier. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John 12, 46. I have come into the world as a light, Jesus says, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. You go to the, the letter, 1 John, out of the gospel and into his letter, he says this in verses 5 through 7. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and we don't live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So how about you? Are you walking in the light or are you walking in darkness? If you put all those references together, you get the sense that what John is talking about is moral purity. Living a pure life. Another way to get at this would be to say that close proximity to Jesus exposes sin. He shows the darkness for what it is in our lives. He shows us that we are in darkness and he wants to pull us into his light. Now, if you're anything like me, when you hear these verses read, you start thinking about this, some kind of response begins to well up inside of you and it's probably one of two things. Either you don't really agree that there's actual darkness or sin in your own life or the exact opposite. You recognize there's darkness and sin in your life, but you can't get free of it. It defines you, but you don't ever experience freedom from it. It's like the same thing is happening with our socks, those pesky socks. We're in the light. It's exposing us, but it's not actually changing our behavior. It might even be shining right now in this place, but it's not changing our behavior. We need to allow the light to truly expose us and then to make us pure. That's a third response, a third option. 
It's an honest recognition of the darkness of my own sin, but I'm not going to stay stuck in the dark. John, John fleshes it out actually just like this, this phrase walking in the light. He helps us understand what he means by it. And the verses that come immediately following that last section, after verses 5 and 7 and 8, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's response one. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins. He'll purify us from unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. In short, the key to walking in the light is honesty through confession. It's being honest before God and confessing our sin to him. That's how the light, gets, the light exposes our sin and then we deal with it before God. Over the last couple of weeks, I, I experienced what I normally call blah when it comes around. And blah is like a technical term that I use to describe emotional funkiness in my life. And this, this happens, you know, and when it starts to come into my life, I start to try to figure out what are the causes of this. And this had been lasting for a couple of weeks, and so I was thinking about it. I ended up talking to my wife, Rachel, about it, obviously, and my accountability partner and some of my friends, trying to get to the bottom of this thing, put my finger on it, and I just I couldn't really get the job done. So I kept on working on it and working on it, and eventually I took the easy way out, and I just said, you know what? This whole thing is due to the season. You know, the sun goes away. It's November, and every November without fail, I start to feel this way. And I think part of it is because the craziness of our ministry season here at Christ Community Church starts to wind down, and I start to get let down a little bit. So I thought, oh, that's what it is. That's got to be what it is. And I think there's some validity to that, but it's just not the whole story. So I kept thinking on it because it wasn't satisfying. And I added another S to it. I said, well, it's probably my schedule. You know, add schedule to season. And so I started to think about my schedule. I thought, I'm a husband. I, I work here at the church as a pastor. I'm a graduate student. I'm running around between lots of things. I'm stressed. That stuff drains me. My schedule is making me feel blah. And again, I think there's some validity to that, but it's just not the whole story. So a little over a week and a half ago, I go to work out, and I'm on the elliptical machine, which I hate. And my arms and legs are feverishly moving back and forth, and I'm trying to figure this whole thing out. And it was like right there on the elliptical machine, the rest of the story got filled in. So I'm sitting there feverishly moving my legs and arms, and I'm praying, God, would you just help me figure this out? It's not satisfying. I'm not settled yet. I don't think I've, I've sorted it all through. And then another S word came to mind. I was like, well, sin, schedule and season and sin. You didn't think about sin. The problem is, though, when I'm in this blah emotional funkiness thing, it's kind of difficult to sort through my own heart and life to figure out what on earth is in there sin-wise. And so as I'm working out, this random phrase pops into my head. Three packages of figs. You guys know what this is? Do you remember this, maybe? Several years ago, Jim and Sue were doing a marriage series, and they were talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And Sue gave that to us as a way to remember the fruit of the Spirit, three packages of figs. The three reminds us that the first three fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, and peace. They're all one-syllable words. And then package, P-K-G, patience, kindness, goodness. And then figs, F-G-S, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this three packages of figs things come into my mind, and I start remembering the fruit of the Spirit, and then I just flip them all over, and I use them as highlighters for confession. And so instead of love, I confess selfishness. And instead of joy, I confess grumpiness, and then stress, and pride, and rudeness, and and roughness and lacking in commitment and badness instead of goodness. 
And I just went right down the line and suddenly it was like I was able to attach all sorts of instances over the last couple of weeks of my life to all of those different things and sin was so evident. And it was like God's light was shining down in this moment on the elliptical and I was able to confess sin honestly before God and I was able to experience freedom in that moment to start walking in darkness. And so as I'm doing this awful thing, I'm suddenly feeling so much better. Because that's what happens when you get your sin exposed and it gets purified. We, we need to cry out with the psalmist who says, Search me, O God, and know my heart because I can't know it on my own. Ask Jesus, this light of the world, to dispel the darkness of sin in your life so you can be honest before him and confess it and get freedom and begin to walk in the light. The light exposes sin. All right, so it reveals salvation. The light exposes sin. Here's the third and final effect. The light illuminates truth. The light illuminates truth. Uh, When I finished high school, I went up for a year to this place up in the North Woods to go to school and to serve in ministry. And I moved up to the North Woods, and do you know what I discovered in the North Woods? Dark. The Northwoods are really, really dark. If you have a Target or a Walmart within several miles of your home, then you do not know what dark is because city lights make dark really impossible. But if you get someplace really dark, you can begin to appreciate the darkness, and then you can begin to appreciate the lights that God has provided for us, stars and moon, so that we can see at night. So there's this stretch of road that goes from my house to my friend's house, and I would often go over there at night to hang out, and I'd have to walk down this dark, dark path. And it was a bit dangerous. I found out it was even more dangerous when you do this on your bike with no light. Not a good thing. So I'm riding in this pitch black, can't see anything at all, and it's like this experience of real darkness begins to freak you out. You can get really scared really easily. So you start to get really, like, you lose all of your confidence and you start to move really, really slowly because you're fearful that your bike is going to hit a bear. (laughs) You can't see anything. Most of the time, at some point, because God is gracious, and this is how I picture this going down, God's like, you know what? I'm going to move a cloud or two. And then the moon shines through over this canopy of trees right down and illuminates my path to my buddy's house. The Bible talks about itself in that exact same way. There's this really famous verse, Psalm 119, 105, that says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Jesus sheds light through his word to open up our eyes so that we can see who he really is, so that we can become acquainted with him, maybe for the first time. And then he illuminates our way, guiding us through life's decisions. This happens in an unbelievable way, an incredible story at the end of Luke's gospel. We started at the beginning, Luke chapter 2, we see the light shining, Jesus arriving. And then at the end, Luke chapter 24, there's another instance of the light shining. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke records the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus arrived as a baby, this light, and he's moving this direction toward death and resurrection. Luke records all of that in chapters 23 and 24, and then he includes this story about two followers of Jesus who are leaving the city of Jerusalem and they are in great distress. And these guys are distraught because of all of the events that have just happened to this guy Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. And so they're grieving his death. 
And Luke says that as they're walking, Jesus himself, risen from the dead, begins to walk alongside of them. And he asks them what they're talking about, and they go into this whole thing about, well, don't you know what's happened in the last couple of days? There's this guy named Jesus. They tell the whole story, and then they say, and, and recently our friends told us that he's also been raised from the dead. And I think Luke's probably loving the irony. Jesus is walking with them, and they don't recognize him, and it's amazing. So they get to their destination, they're having dinner together, and when they're having dinner together, this is what it says in Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. They, they can see, they start to understand what's going on. Jesus says, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures. Jesus does Old Testament overview, Bible overview, and then their eyes are opened, Luke says. Look at verses 31 and 32. As Jesus is talking about these things, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and then he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked on the road and opened the scriptures to us? A little while later, verse 45, he says that he goes to some of his other disciples and it says there that he opened their minds so they could understand the scripture. There's opening of eyes, opening of minds. The light is shedding forth on the word itself to give enlightening to the eyes to see clearly. Here's the point. Jesus sheds light through his word to open up our eyes so that we can see who he is, so that we can get acquainted with him. And he illuminates our path. And that's the only way that this can happen. Jesus' light shining through his word is the only way to know him, to know how to go in life. Now, I don't know what you're facing right now in your life. I don't know what you're facing this Christmas season. I don't know what you're facing in the year to come. But I do know that if you're walking down a road and there's a canopy of trees over the top and it's really, really dark and you don't have a light, that you might just walk into a bear. You might get lost. You might come into harm. There's a light that illuminates truth, helping us to understand who he is and can illuminate our way so that we can navigate life's circumstances. I want to encourage you this Christmas and these final days leading up to the celebration of God's light to read through the book of Luke, this gospel that we've been looking at. It has the Christmas story at the beginning. You get to know Jesus through it. Advent is this time of preparation leading up to Christmas, and it gives each of us a unique opportunity to engage the Scripture and to have our eyes opened by the light who illuminates truth, Jesus himself enlightening our eyes. Jesus is the light of the world. He reveals salvation, he exposes sin, and he illuminates truth. I want to invite you to stand with me. We'll close in prayer together. I want to hand things over to our campus pastors at this point. And I'm going to be praying that Jesus would shine his light into your life this Christmas season, that you'd allow him to do so. I'd also encourage you as our prayer team members kind of get to their posts and our kneelers are available. You can pray with friends and family right here in your seats. But just spend some time praying, asking Jesus, the light to shine in your life. Let's pray together. 
Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that we can open up your word and that even here as I've been praying this week leading up to this, that you can enlighten our eyes, that you can open our eyes, that we could see clearly our own sin, that you'd expose it and we'd be honest and confess, that we, that we could see clearly what to do in life situations and big decisions and the challenges that we face and to get, to get to know you better this Christmas season, but also Jesus, that because you are the light of the world, the light long promised from before, the light who spoke at creation, the light who will enlighten all things for all time, that you would shed your light into our hearts to bring salvation to those that don't know you and joy to those of us that do that have already experienced that light. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. Shine your light on us this Christmas season. We pray in your name. Amen.